0: This presentation is from Design Research 2020, day two. Our next speaker for today as we head into lunch is Kellyanne Kershaw. Kellyanne is going to talk to us about, in, in the particular context of uh, social research, how we can share our power as designers and as researchers with our participants. Um, so please join me in welcoming them uh, to the talk. Hi Kellyanne.
1: Hello, can you hear me? I can. Beautiful, let me start sharing my screen. Fantastic, Over to you. so kia Koto. koutou. Uh, my name's Kellyanne McKercher. Um, I was born at the base of a dormant volcano on Te lands lands in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Hello to anyone that's in from Aotearoa. Um, I have always been a guest on Indigenous lands both in Aotearoa and here in Australia and I come to you today from uh, Garigal and Wongal lands on the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I also want to acknowledge the, the cost that has come with the sharing of this land and my Personal hope that we might move to a place of justice and equity into the future. It would also be remiss not to acknowledge the role that research has played uh, in colonising and recolonising Indigenous people, and I guess at times writing over black spaces with white words. As a non binary person, I use the pronouns of them, they, and theirs, so please do so too. You can find me on Twitter. Or at my website. So today I'm speaking specifically about peer and community led research and in the context of social stuff. So when I say that I mean things like domestic and family violence, mental health, suicide prevention, child protection and the intersex between all of those things. And that's really quite different to the world of some of our commercial colleagues here on the call. And I guess with that difference come some different imperatives, sensitivities, and considerations, uh, some of which Jack spoke about yesterday. So, through talking about a specific methodology, I want to talk about redistributing power back to the people we talk about. I'd like you to really think about who owns research, who owns stories, and ultimately who bears the benefit and the brunt. Of those things. I'll show you a few tools, I'll tell a few stories Um, and when I was thinking about this talk I thought perhaps a more appropriate name was whoever holds the pen tells the story. And telling our own stories and our words is really important and particularly for marginalized or vulnerable communities, it gives the chance to rewrite narratives that have historically and traditionally focused on strengths and deficits, uh, sorry, deficits and disadvantages, as opposed to strength and resilience. And I think that that requires a shift of frame, like Paul spoke about yesterday. So accent-wise, when I say peer research, you're probably hearing the fruit, whereas I'm talking about peer, the friends. So I've worked in social design and research for the last decade odd, um, in and out of government, in nonprofits, largely in health, um, and in my own business called Beyond Sticky Notes. I'm also currently working in New South Wales government for health pathology, where, I work with the most extraordinary people, scientists, careers, doctors, all who at this moment in time are really frantically getting through an enormous testing volume uh, to support the health of our communities at this uh, pandemic. I also have a a book that's just come out called Beyond Sticky Notes, um, and it will be remiss of me not to take the opportunity to tell you about it, given all book launches have sort of had to shape shift at the moment. So across lots of the areas I mentioned, whether it's domestic violence, uh, indigenous health, mental health, over the last five or so years, I've been hearing a series of things that have become uh, increasingly worrisome or don't sit quite right with me. And some of those things are people saying, why do people I don't know, know so much about me? Why is this report about all the things I can't do? I don't see my life like that. We're left with a report that no one can read and no idea what to do with. How can a non-Indigenous person write about Indigenous lives? And the big one, which for me, I feel most viscerally, is the question of why am I always being researched? And I'd like you to, to... Think about the implication that comes with being a person, a family, a community that is continually researched. What might that feel like and what might that say? And I guess while some of us have moved away from these things or have found ways that we don't hear these things, I guess many of us are still uh, in a space where these things continue to happen. So we often talk about power without really talking about it or saying what it is specifically or how more people have more of it and people have less of it in our society and our world. So as Jacks mentioned yesterday, power is the ability to bring about a change in your life or the life of others. And there's all kinds of ways that we have more power. So we might be part of a majority group. We might have more wellness, more education connections with powerful people, uh, decision-making authority, money, Uh, we might be more gregarious or extroverted, and we might also be white. And in our work as social designers, many of the communities and people that we work with can't tick many of these boxes, whereas often in our position we can, and that creates a power differential or a power difference in relationship. And if we don't name and tame power, then we inadvertently end up adding to people's shame, their isolation, and their sense of not being a competent interpreter of their own lives. I really like these questions that um, British parliamentarian Tony Benn asks, which I think we can also ask of ourselves, which is, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? So how about you? How would you answer those questions? So in preparing this talk, I wanted to think about the history of our collective industry. um, What systems want from us and ask from us as researchers? And on the other side, how communities, people, and families tend to feel about the things that we do. And particularly the things that they want for themselves. And unfortunately, research is a tool that can be weaponized, as we heard yesterday, and sometimes can lead to the disadvantage of people, whether it's the taking away of opportunities, resources, family members, and as researchers we might not realize how complicit we've been in that process. So I see both sides here as a social researcher but also a person in community, as a foster parent to a very complex resilient young man who is researched continuously through different kinds of systems, and there is a certain level of dehumanization that comes along with that. So when I put my ear to the ground in community, some of the things I hear people really are wanting is research that is respectable, reciprocal, relational, and useful. And the usefulness is defined by the community itself and people in community, as opposed to what we might think or government might think is most needed. And that contrasts to the kind of fly-in and fly-out world where consultants, might pop in and get what they need, which is more of an acquisitive style. I hear lots of community members tell me that they felt really uncomfortable when someone with a significantly different power came and spoke with neat, and were really fearful that their access to service might be taken away. Um, if they didn't perform in that intervening. The site researchers stuck in a fallacy that rapport solves all and that we should find workarounds for people's discomfort instead of asking ourselves, what role are we playing in the perpetuating of this discomfort? I hear lots of communities asking the question of why can't I tell my story, and confused about hearing the message of, oh, we just don't have the resources to hear from everyone, or only 10 people can be involved in this discovery. And I hear people saying, surely there's a different way of listening and learning from each other. We are very stuck in this language of people being hard to access. There is no such thing as that systems and consultations are hard to access. They are often unnecessarily formal and really don't meet people where they are. Sometimes I I hear colleagues particularly who come from different cultural worldviews having their work edited to read better. And when we edit things, we're actually editing out cultural and social nuance um, sometimes without realizing it. And as I mentioned at the very start, and as Stan Grant reminded us this particular uh, Invasion Day is sometimes we write over black spaces with white words. Sometimes we have this temptation to go out and talk about individual behaviors. So why is this person unable to thrive? Um, Why are they doing this particular thing or why can't they be more healthy? And when we do that, we're failing sometimes to understand systems, including systems of oppression that make it disproportionately difficult for some people to thrive at all. So by contrast, some of the words that I am hearing from community about what they want and what they need is more self-determination, more decolonizing practices, what Adrian Marie Brown calls transformative justice, And more healing-centered work. And that flies in stark contrast, I guess, to some of the styles that we work that might be unintentionally recolonizing or continuing to hold power with a certain privileged group of people. And we might be those people. I hear communities asking for more diverse responses. That they don't need more professional interventions, services, or programs, but perhaps would like to take up the mantle of responding to things uh, themselves. And while we tend to use reports, personas, stories as stand-ins for real people, unsurprisingly, people in community don't accept that, and they want more seats at the table, to be a part of the processes of meaning making that are about them and about their stories and about their lives. So where does that leave us? Um, Hopefully a little bit uncomfortable and hopefully in that discomfort, ready to hear about something that might be an alternative or might be a new frame. So what if we got out of the way? and supported people to tell their own stories. And alongside doing that, what if we increased our system's capacity to listen directly to people, families, and communities? So in the paradigm of peer or community-led research, we're moving from the left side of the screen, which is really about researcher as expert and as author, where a small team or in our previous example, a really big team, uh, talk to as many people as the project allows. And sometimes that doesn't allow for much. And unfortunately also, researchers as hard as we try for diversity may end up being from a particular identity group. And that might not be the same identity as the community or people we're trying to get alongside. So in a peer and community-led setting, the researcher moves to that of a coach or a supporter that we build a network of people in community, train them, support them, to talk to people in their own natural networks. And usually that's between three and five people as not to create a really significant burden. So if you imagine you had 10 people of various identities, you might end up with 50-odd stories. So if we're to dim our light like the conference um, title suggests that means that we're sort of shape-shifting in our role or attempting to be biodegradable in some capacity and that means we have to soften that really purest thing of I could do that better because in social justice it's not always about whether we could do something better but where people's goals and aspirations for their own lives have not been adequately met and where we can potentially change the way we're working to participate in things like greater self-determination, decolonising methodologies and transformative justice. And I really like what um, Pateman and, and Willamette say here, which is when people are never asked to give anything back, and when the assets they have are sidelined or overlooked, they atrophy. And they suggest that the fact that our social needs continue to rise, whether it's social isolation, increasing numbers of children and out-of-home care, is not about not consulting enough, but rather a failure to ask people for their help and to use the skills that they have. I think sometimes we're so worried about asking people for their help that we actually don't ask enough of them. And often, I've noticed over the last decade, people are willing to give so much more than we give them credit for. So, the methodology that I'm proposing or suggesting today um, has five key steps. And it will be a familiar pattern to many of you in terms of how you work or how you're working, that of course starts out with making sure we're reaching the right people, and we're doing that in relational and sensitive ways. It then involves bringing a group of people together from a particular community, uh, focusing on building social connection, first and foremost in that group, sharing our own stories, learning to listen, and co-developing discovery tools. So we don't make things for people, we support them to make them for themselves and their communities. Those people who I call insight gatherers, because I think it's less formal and intimidating, then go out into the world and talk to people who are already in their natural network. We wanna keep some momentum in that. Uh, I found over time that if we leave people in the field per se too long, they tend to sort of get sidetracked, forget about what they heard or lose some of the materials that they were potentially capturing responses. We bring people back together for what I call an analysis jam, where we're debriefing, sense-making, storytelling, and then importantly, building advocacy strategies based on what we're hearing. And then the next step is bringing the findings to life and really being able to engage all those people who we've built their capacity, their learning, and their collective knowledge, how do we share that more broadly out into the world? So I'll give you some specific examples. There's four principles that sit across these things that I've found are really important. And the first one, unsurprisingly, is relational. So this work is very much grounded in existing relationships and in unhurried slowness. It's really in some ways somewhat disrespectful to suggest that someone would tell the story of their life in one hour or one and a half hours. We're attempting to work relationally because it tends to be more affirming for people who are uh, marginalized or vulnerable, that we're trying to minimize the shame and anxiety that can come with meeting a new person And when we're already understood in our backstory, when someone understands who we are, where we've come from, and what matters to us, we can sort of start from a more advanced moment in time as attempting, as opposed to attempting to scramble for the backstory. It's very much about direct. So if people in communities have access to knowledge and insights about them, They are more able to take direct change in their lives, in their family lives, and in their communities. There's of course something about nuance and subtlety here. If we speak the same language, either sort of literally like another language or sort of figuratively, like we use particular jargon or slang, we have the same codes and shortcuts, is I understand what you're saying. And you're not needing to sort of code switch or try to make me understand or worse try to make me feel comfortable as opposed to being able to share your story in your way. And I first came across this particular methodology from Jenny Kelly and colleagues who have this fabulous article makes you proud to be Black A, reflections on meaningful Indigenous research participation. And in it, they argue that while research outputs are undoubtedly important, in many cases the process used is of greater importance. So some examples across four domains, mental health, ageing, driving and parenting. So the first one is from the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Um, Before I left TAXI last year, I set up a project that's been funded by the Faith Fuller Foundation in South Australia. And the project idea came about from meeting this young person on the right side of the screen called Diana at a, a mental health first aid training. Having worked in mental health for a while, I was really overcome by the resilience, the strength and the capacity of Diana and what they had endured over their life, and the sort of tacit and experiential knowledge that they had from that. And I could see that Diana had this extraordinary capacity to contribute, but perhaps due to age and status, might have been only seen as a participant in someone else's research, as opposed to someone who has the capacity to lead something themselves. So what I pitched to Faye Fuller is to say, well, what if we got a group of young people who have lived experience of mental health and suicide to be able to learn from each other and then develop unique responses based on that learning? And they would be the ones leading that. And that might be alternatives to our current system. This particular photo is obviously sometime on. Is of Diana and another insight gatherer called Josh, who are standing outside of an emergency department in South Australia, where they have gone in and pitched some ideas for how the emergency response could be better for people who are experiencing mental distress. And all of that was about us getting out of the way, supporting them, deferring to their lived experience, and then building their leadership capacity so they can step directly into these spaces. We're asking people for their help, we're valuing what they can contribute, and then we're getting out of the way so they can exercise their leadership. The second example here is a piece of work that some colleagues did uh, in Aotearoa, uh, the Innovation Unit, or used to be called Innovate Change. And this particular project was about uh, rates of young people who are driving without the correct license in Māori, Uh, which is the community in South Auckland and a community that's predominantly made up of uh, Pacific and Māori families. So there was an assumption that young people were naughty um, and they drove without the correct license because they just broke the law. So we weren't sure that that was what was going on. So we recruited a group of insight gatherers. I think there was about 20 of them across all ages, including young people, older people, police, local service providers. And they went out into community and had conversations about what is going on around driving in this community. What are young people's experiences of driving, of the driver licensing system? What is helping them gain the correct license? What's getting in the way? Now, unsurprisingly, what we heard back was not that young people were naughty but rather that there were a set of cultural and social norms that were asking young people to drive without a license. You know, uh, please take Nana to the shops or you have to take your brother to school. So our response therefore was really different based on getting this insight from community. And that group of insight gatherers became absolutely instrumental all the way through the project. Uh, to be advocating, but also to already be making changes in their lives and communities without waiting for the design process to be over, for a service or a program to be put in place. And this absolutely incredible uh, woman who's standing here, Val Tsuriatur, which you meet in this video where insight gatherers are talking, actually went on to be the person that led the entire solution. And we found Val in the insight gathering phase. And she sort of came out or sort of bubbled up as this extraordinary inspiration and community connector. And through meeting her through this style of research, we were then able to get alongside her and build up her capacity to lead a solution directly in her community. There is a video here that I won't show you today, but there's a link of, of all of the insight gatherers speaking about what they heard. It's a really crappy video, it was shot on a mobile phone, yet it ended up going to the minister who made different funding decisions based on seeing the video. And as you'll see, the power of hearing someone from community talk about their own experience is so much more powerful than an outsider or a researcher, a politician speaking about that. And of course there would have been an extraordinary power differential if myself and my colleague, both young, white and fairly privileged had gone into community to talk about experiences that we have never had. Uh, In the next one, in South Australia, to review the outcomes of the state ageing policy, uh, this was last year, we recruited a group of older people and younger people to go out and speak to older people in their lives, particularly from groups who are less likely to age well, whether that be LGBT people, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse, older people living with disabilities, um, or survivors of institutional trauma. And through hearing from a really diverse range of voices, we got really clear and compelling insights that have now informed the state aging strategy uh, for South Australia. And finally, when it comes to parenting, this is a particular project that we ran in Waitakere in West Auckland, where we were interested in supporting parents of under fives. And particularly looking at the relationship between parental stress isolation and child abuse and neglect. So in the same way, we got together a group of parents to be insight gatherers to go out and talk to other parents about their experiences. And unsurprisingly, as I mentioned before, that minimized some of the shame and some of the pain around having experiences of isolation, of poverty, of stress, of uh, adverse mental health, and feeling quite supported knowing you're speaking to another parent in the same setting. Once again, through that process, we met this super powerful, amazing woman called Corinne, who also went on to be one of the main people leading the solution. So the things that happened across all those projects is insight gatherers became leaders and they became uh, advocates. That there was really high ownership, input and connection And those were all in places that were already really oversaturated, that we could have said, we know lots about this, we have lots of research, but us having lots of research and community having knowledge about themselves often are two separate things. We got heaps of nuance out of all of this. It wasn't homogenous and it wasn't monocultural, as can sometimes or often happen. Because people were dealing with their stories, the stories of their friends and family, so really high level of sensitivity and a low level of stigma. Sometimes, unfortunately, when very privileged designers and researchers write up people's stories without being part of those communities, they unfortunately end up stigmatizing people or focusing too much on the disadvantages and not enough about how people actually define their own lives and the strengths and resilience and resources they have. all those projects people took action on the findings already in their lives without waiting for programs or services and people had heaps of pride about this. They had new skills and new perspectives on old issues. So from a sort of quick tip perspective, it is absolutely essential in these spaces that we tap into people's desire to contribute And, of course, that we recognize that contribution uh, financially, socially, and we attribute their work. So we often talk about reaching into places with recruitment techniques that are really sensitive and compassionate. And I think sometimes we talk about this without giving specific examples of what that would look like. So I want to show you uh, a video from a dear friend and colleague, Katarina Davis on a project we did together around diabetes. And we recognized that people felt reasonably shamed by the health system around their illness and that diabetes disproportionately affects Māori and Pacific families. So I'll show you this now. So what you would have hopefully seen is the level of sensitivity and compassion that we can achieve when we work through Uh, more relational ways of recruiting and when we work through people that are more like us and can be more affirming. Overall, we have to recruit for the diversity that we want to reach. So what that means in practice, and if I take the state aging example as, as as a particular story about this, the department already had a group of story gatherers and those story gatherers, whilst fantastic, were all um, middle-class white and had reasonably high resources to be able to age well. And unsurprisingly, that meant that they weren't necessarily connected into parts of community that weren't able to age well or people with diverse identities, backgrounds and experiences. So when we came in to do a separate piece of work, we had to sort of turn that on its head and say, actually, our insight gatherers themselves need to be quite diverse, and they need to be connected to the people and families that we're really trying to reach. And let's be really, really explicit about that. Because if our insight gatherers aren't diverse, it's really unlikely that their networks will be. One of the things we often talk about in social innovation work is kind of interventions that we can make. Like what would an intervention be to increase people's social connectedness? Well, the research process itself can be an intervention and how we do a process can increase social outcomes for people if done in the same way, in the right way. So in this particular example, instead of just recruiting older people as insight gatherers, we also recruited younger people because the department had a strategy around increasing intergenerational connections. So through our research approach itself, we also wanted to increase intergenerational connections and build sort of a mutual exchange between older people and younger people about what it would take for us all to age well in Australia. So in terms of bringing people together and training them and building up their capacity, I think as researchers, we can sort of jump to everyone needs to know everything or how we're going to teach these hyper specialized skill sets to people. You're not going to do that and people will not reach the level of specialization um, that you have reached in your practice and that's okay because the purpose of this is to work really relationally. And to hear things that perhaps even ourselves, as good as we are at rapport or questioning, wouldn't and couldn't hear. So as you bring people together, the insight gatherers together, you're really aiming first and foremost to build the social connections in that group. And then use really simple tools to help people understand the difference between a regular conversation and an insight conversation. And really simply, one that I often use is to draw out two massive circles on the floor that are sort of overlapping, that are events, and ask people to move between the different circles, talking about what they're going to take with them into the insight-gathering conversation and what they're going to leave behind. I also use a particular tool that comes from the eight ways of Aboriginal learning. Uh, which is to use learning maps as opposed to really detailed documentation. Um, People will always lose really detailed documentation if you give it to them, and it will take away from the kind of relational present conversation that we're wanting them to have with each other. So a learning map is about using sort of symbols and simple constructs to spell out where is it you're trying to go in your conversation and provide really simple signposts for people. It's really important that insight gatherers have the chance to tell their own stories. So everyone comes into something like this with a bank of experiences that they themselves have had. And sometimes when we then ask people to go out into community and talk to each other, they haven't done the work to set that stuff to the side. So when you're bringing people together, they have to have the chance to share their own stories, but to also see that their story and their experience may not be the same as the stories and experiences that they're trying to hear. When people are out in the kind of field per se, or really their normal lives talking to each other, as a research team or a support team, we're trying to check in and to constantly be debriefing and having sense-making conversations. That also allows people to flag anything that felt uncomfortable, unsafe, or they're not quite sure where their sort of duty of care sits as a friend. We are constantly checking and rechecking people's comprehension of the task at hand. I've sometimes had insight gatherers um, think that they were going out to have a conversation with themselves, which is interesting, (laughs) and needed to have some conversations about, no, you're, you're really wanting to speak to others. As I mentioned, don't leave insight gatherers in the field for too long. We lose momentum, we lose pace, and people lose anything they have captured. When you bring people back together for the analysis jam, it's really important to slow down. We do so much rushing in design and research, and I understand that in a commercial setting, there are reasons for that. However, in a social setting, we have to meet people's social needs alongside. Uh, debriefing, sense-making, analysis and synthesis all whilst practicing hospitality at the very same time. To do that, I like to draw on somatic or embodied techniques as well as visual and really minimize the amount of writing that people are doing, particularly on post-it notes. We're often looking for really clever and clear metaphors and symbols to explain what we've heard as opposed to coming up with massive lists of insights, and we're looking to identify and bolster leaders. And finally, there's of course a job we have to do in terms of really elevating what has been learned through a process. And that's not, about, not just about letting the rest of the world know and inviting others to come and contribute and learn from, but also about building the pride of the group of people that have done this work. So this is an example from Aotearoa, from the Innovation Unit, and a project called Generations, which is about older people aging well, where the group of insight gatherers went out, collected some fabulous insights, and then uh, Innovation Unit created this beautiful kind of event that was really tailored and curated with these huge beautiful posters and older people themselves telling the stories both of their own lives but also what they heard from community and to those events were invited politicians, service providers, young people, all who could get around the conversation that's being had and find ways that they themselves might be able to contribute to or to make change based on the insights. So as Wendell Berry suggests to us, nobody can discover the world for anyone else. And it's only after we've discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. So what I'm suggesting here when it comes to social research, when it comes to communities that have historically been spoken about um, rather than with, and partnered with that we move from, can we do research to should we? And if we should, in what ways? What ways would be most affirming? And from your perspective, are you the right person or the best person to be having conversations? And if you're not, then who might be? Thank you so much for your time and attention. Um, I'll finish there.
0: Thank you very much Kellyanne and look, thank you for dealing with I know what has been or it must have been a fairly stressful uh, travel week trying to get home to New Zealand before borders closed um, that can't have been kind of been fun for you so we appreciate you uh, appearing for us here today. Um, we have a, a couple of questions um, if we could. Uh, Matali asked a question um, around just that, that notion of ownership and how how open are people to the idea of taking ownership of those insights and potentially the solutions as well?
1: Yeah, by people, do we mean people in communities? Yes. Yeah, look, I've always been completely flawed by how much people want that mm. and have been asking for that. Um, and I notice us making heaps of assumptions about what people can't do or what they don't want to do, Um, but when we ask and offer support, I've never had someone turn around and say, whoa, that's totally beyond me. Mm. It's not about leaving people to their own devices or sort of government in particular stepping back in a way, but rather taking on a, a different or a new role.
0: We have a a couple of related questions um, looking for more information about how you go about recruiting those insight gatherers. Can you tell us a little more?
1: Mm. Yeah, so usually a mixed strategy. Um, So in any community, I'd identify a set of community connectors that are people that are held in high regard in their community setting. Mm -hmm. Um, So those people themselves would do a bit of that work. Um, I've had surprisingly really good success with some social media um, promotion, particularly targeting specific groups, geographic locations. Um, as a general principle, I don't generally work with peak organisations. I they talk on behalf of people and don't necessarily have the strongest reach, um in Speaking just before. um, That particular video got us everyone we needed in about 24 hours and through Dinah during the interim.
0: Okay, thank you. I think we are. Um, we'll, we'll leave it there. There are a couple of more questions, I think, for you in the QA panel, if you could um, spare a few moments to take a look. And otherwise, thank you once again for that wonderful insight.